From the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's new podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. We're excited to launch this new series this month as we approach the 2018 Chautauqua season of programs in the arts, education, interfaith dialogue, and recreation. In the coming weeks, we'll air conversations with leaders and luminaries who will help define the 2018 summer experience. A little on their personal background, what drives them, and what to look forward to this coming season. Then, during the season, we'll continue the conversation with some of the institution's most prominent guests on their roles in the matters that shape our world. I hope you'll join us. Today, we'll hear from Gene Robinson, the institution's new vice president of religion, who is about to enter his first summer as the Chautauqua community's senior pastor and faith leader. I think we all have a spiritual longing. Now, uh, I would, in its most general terms, I would say that that has to do with the questions, who am I? Why am I here? Uh, what am I supposed to get done while, while I'm here, right? I think those are religious questions uh, and spiritual questions. And so um, it seems to me that one of the best things that Chautauqua can do is, is to um, uh, illustrate and, and, and showcase, really, the, the ways the different world faiths deal with those questions. Listen on to hear more about Gene's impressive and unique rise through the Episcopal Church, his path to Chautauqua, and vision for the future of the Department of Religion, plus his most anticipated moments of 2018. And now, my conversation with Gene Robinson. Joining us in studio today is the Right Reverend V. Jean Robinson, Chautauqua Institution's Vice President of Religion and the retired Episcopal Bishop of New Hampshire. Thanks so much for joining us today, I'm Jean. delighted to be here, both at Chautauqua and talking to you. Yeah, we're glad to have you in town, and we'll get into your off-season arrangements here in a, in, a, in a little bit. But I'd love for you to start off by giving us a little uh, information into your background, and, and particularly your faith journey, since you did end up um, being a bishop and in charge of a, a large congregation. Uh, w- t- tell us a little more about your background. Sure. Um, I was born in rural Kentucky. Uh, my parents were uh, really poor. Uh, we were uh, tobacco sharecroppers, and uh, I didn't live in a house with running water till I was 10. And uh, I think uh, partly because of our poverty, but partly because of my parents' faith, um, church was really important. And um, we worshipped at a a rural and fairly fundamentalist congregation of the Disciples of Christ denomination, which is actually not a fundamentalist denomination, but my my particular parish was... uh, uh, quite conservative, and and pretty much all farmers, tobacco farmers. Um, so church had always been uh, important to me. In fact, I still have um, my 13-year perfect attendance pens. You know that come they, one attaches to another, to another, to another. So I I took it all real seriously. But by the time I was in high school. Uh, I had a, uh, a high school honors English class, um, a teacher who had me reading Paul Tillich. And the, the kind of fundamentalist approach to God wasn't so much working for me anymore. And it was just a fluke, really, not um, uh, because I was Episcopalian, um, but because I got a full scholarship, and that was the only way I was going to get to college at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. 
um, which is actually owned by the Southern Dioceses of the Episcopal Church. And uh, and it was there that I, I, I first uh, went to an Episcopal church and experienced the service and so on. And I, j- I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the liturgy, but also um, its connection to history. You know, the Disciples denomination began in one of the Great Awakenings here in this country. Mm-hmm. But um, to be a part of a church that traces its roots all the way back to the Apostles, um, through its apostolic succession of bishops, um, was just, um, I don't know, it just uh, added a lot uh, for me. And little did I know that one day I would I would be one of those bishops. And, um, uh, and I found a home in the Episcopal Church, and uh, I've never left. So you attended the University of the South. What were you studying at that time? I uh, I was pre-med. Uh, I had wanted to be a pediatrician my whole life. Uh, and in college, discovered that it wasn't the science of medicine that I was interested in. It was the people. Mm. And so I, uh, I actually wound up majoring in American studies before it was a, a major. Uh, but I had an American history teacher who who talked the faculty into letting me um, take courses in five different departments that related to America. And uh, and so um, I guess I was the first American studies major uh, to graduate from there. And then um, from there, uh, felt called to the ordained ministry and went to seminary, the General Theological Seminary in New York City, the, the oldest uh, seminary in the Episcopal Church. And um, was ordained uh, at the end of that, um, having married in the um, uh, during that time, and then I went and served a um, an Episcopal parish in Ridgewood, New Jersey, for two years while my wife uh, went back to college uh, to finish up, and then we moved to New Hampshire, which is where I stayed for the for the rest of my uh, active ordained ministry. Mm-hmm. How long in the Episcopal Church does it take one to rise from the you know the in charge of a local parish to the reaches that you ended up well, finding yourself? Well, um, uh, there is no specific time. Uh, you know, after three years of seminary and some interning uh, uh, in between, uh, you you get ordained. And then when a diocese uh, needs a new bishop because the former bishop has retired or whatever, um, they can elect any ordained priest anywhere in the worldwide Anglican Communion. So uh, some are elected quite young, mm-hmm. um, in their, say, mid to late 40s, um, and others uh, later than that. And I was one of those later than that, uh, mostly because um, I was openly gay at that time. And, um, well, I still am. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but a lot of dioceses were uh, very nervous about uh, electing an openly gay person because uh, it's it's hard to remember how recently it was uh, that churches were were not ordaining gay people, uh, certainly uh, not calling them to be their priest or their bishop, and so dioceses were very very nervous about the kind of sort of firestorm that would come down on their heads if they were to uh, elect someone like me. So I think I was fifty five or fifty six maybe when I. Um, when I was elected bishop. And you have the distinction of being the first ever openly gay bishop to be elected within the Episcopalian Church. That's right. Or in historic Christianity that has this apostolic succession. Now, let's let's be clear. We've always had gay bishops. Uh, but 
what we haven't had is someone who was quite open and comfortable with that uh, prior to their election. Talk to me a little bit about that your personal life and faith and your faith and how those uh, separate from being a member of the clergy how how do those interact and and have informed where you've ended up and who you've become i've always believed in god and um a relationship um with god has always been important to me by late high school and even through college and and even after that I began to see a difference between God and the church. And one of the things, if you if you hang around me very, very much, you're going to hear me say, don't ever mistake uh, the church for God, um, uh, because God never gets it wrong, and the church often does. And so um, I think almost from the very beginning, even before I became an ordained person, I I, I believed that the church was doing the best it could, but never quite got it right the way God got it right and the way uh, God in Jesus Christ got it right. So um, I've, I've tried to um, um, utilize the institution of the church to make uh, the living God known uh, to people because uh, that living God was made known to me. And and while I, I thought I had a really close relationship uh, with God um, up until my election as bishop, um, uh, I was wrong about that. And, and it was not being elected bishop that made God closer to me, but uh, the firestorm around that election. And, you know, it, one of my great learnings from that whole experience is that the reason that people on the margins and the reason that people who are in some kind of an extreme situation um, seem to be able to apprehend and comprehend God better is that uh, during those times, if you're on the margins or you're in some kind of an extreme situation, you know you can't do it by yourself. And therefore, I think your spirit is more open to God's communication with you. And, and clearly, um, that was true for me. And God seemed so close to me um, that uh, praying was almost redundant. It would be like, I don't know, you know, I'm sitting here with you. Why would I, why would I speak to you out into the ether? Because, like, you're right there. So... Um, um, it was a, a profoundly ex uh, um, spiritual experience for me. And often um, people in the media would say, because, you know, I had two and a half years of daily death threats and all that kind of stuff. What, you know, uh, do you ever regret doing this? And I would always say, I have never felt so close to God. Why would I regret that ever? So um I think it's it's been true uh, for most of my life that I've been very aware of God's presence, but like everyone else, uh, more so at certain times. So you were bishop in New Hampshire for about a decade. Right. What was that experience like for you in, in an in administrative capacity, but also as the ultimate faith leader in your, in your area? Well... Uh, we have to remember that the word administration is, uh, you could say it, it's ad ministry, right? And I always said that if it ever stopped being ministry for me, um, then I, I'd get out. And 
And what I mean by that is that uh, a bishop is primarily a, a shepherd and pastor. So my congregation were the clergy and their families, right? So I was the pastor to the pastors um, of my uh, diocese. And and in, in many ways, my 48 parishes and nine summer chapels and three schools were... Um, were my congregation as well. Uh, uh, every congregation has a personality. Every congregation has skeletons in the closet, and every congregation has has mistakes they've made in the past, which they are apt to repeat if they don't learn from those mistakes. So, uh, shepherding a congregation and shepherding clergy through that. Um, uh, is a, is a very pastoral uh, process, and and I found it uh, to be so. Um, so, uh, you know, for instance, another uh, um, ad, technically administrative job, but I thought incredibly pastoral, was dealing with victims of sexual abuse mm. uh, at the hands of uh, clergy. Um, we uh, in the Episcopal Church we have almost no instances of child abuse, um, but we do have instances where um, clergy have taken advantage of a vulnerable parishioner and started some sort of a sexual relationship. And I helped develop the national guidelines for all of that. And then, as when I became bishop, um, it was my uh, responsibility to hear those allegations and to deal with them properly. And it's something that I took incredibly seriously. And and one of the things that I'm the most proud of the Episcopal Church for, because we did this in the very early 90s and, and really kind of stepped up to the plate. Uh, not that we shouldn't have done it decades before that, but it was still uh, earlier than most, most religious uh, institutions uh, dealt with it. And so uh, I found that to be an incredibly uh, important pastoral role, uh, not not only with the person who had been abused, but with the uh, the accused and with the the congregation in which such a thing uh, happens, because it it is a jolt to the entire system. If you're just tuning in, we're recording from the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steves, and sitting across the table from me today is Gene Robinson, Vice President of Religion and Senior Pastor of Chautauqua Institution. I'm going to squeeze about four years into one question because I want to get us to Chautauqua. But So you retired as bishop in 2013. What, were you, what have you been doing in the intervening years, and how has it ended up where you're sitting across the table from me? I had done some work uh, while I was still bishop for the Center uh, for American Progress in Washington, D.C. It's one of the two uh, main um, uh, progressive think tanks, along with the Brookings Institution. And um, uh, I worked on um, gay and lesbian, bisexual, and transgender rights and, um, and with that community, and just had a wonderful experience there. And in, I guess it, it was at the, must have been the end of 2016, I went to Michael Hill's going away party. Uh, I hadn't gotten to know him uh, through the board of the Gay Men's Chorus in Washington. And, um, you know, he was a friend, not, not a close friend, but, it, but certainly uh, I knew him and knew him well enough to go to his uh, uh, going away party. And, uh, you know, he had never said anything to me like, um, would you ever consider maybe coming to Chautauqua? You know, um, 
So when he called me in February of last year, 2017, he said, I'm going to be in D.C. this weekend. Would you like to have lunch? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. I'm thinking lunch, right? But what he was thinking was um, the fact that Robert Franklin had um, told him that he would be leaving at the end of the uh, 2018 summer. And... Um, and he wanted to ask me if I would come to Chautauqua. I had spoken here in the two o'clock uh, lecture se uh, several times, three or four times, and then I had served as the week's uh, chaplain and preacher uh, once, and of course, you know, fell in love with Chautauqua, and uh, and frankly got my introduction to it uh, from Dan Carslake, um, who was I don't know sixth or seventh generation Chautauquan here, and who was the um, a filmmaker for for the Bible tells me so, of which I, I was featured in that, and uh, so um, you know my experience with Chautauqua had been just uh, wildly positive, of course, um, and and I was uh, I was intrigued, um, but I but I eventually turned Michael Hill down. Um, he um, expected me to move to Chautauqua like um, everyone else, and. And I said, well, I'm going to consider it because it would be such an honor uh, to to work at and for Chautauqua. But I said, you know, I, uh, I've done the cold and I've done the snow and I'm really not trying to build a resume at this point. And um, I, I've fallen in love with Washington and I, I don't think I can leave. And uh, so about a month later, he came back and, and said, well... We've uh, sort of reconfigured the religion department and created the um, uh, position at the vice president level. And uh, uh, you can do that half time from Washington, September to May, and then you'll be on campus for the entire summer. Well, I just couldn't think of any good reason to say no. <laughs> and uh, so I said yes, and I'm uh, just uh, delighted. How do your... So you were here as a speaker many times, as you said, a guest chaplain on our, um, our at our worship platform. What were your imp how did the reality of Chautauqua match your impressions or not match your impressions once you've been here on the ground and and been on staff now for getting close to a year? I I think the uh, both the positive impressions as well as the uh, challenges that I saw every time I came uh, continued to be the case. And by the, by the positive stuff, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, everyone talks about places being unique. This one really is. Uh, every time I try to describe it to someone, and I'm sure this is a common experience for all Chautauquans, when, when you try to tell somebody about Chautauqua, you realize it's almost impossible to describe or to do so adequately. But I loved that there were all these conversations going on uh, in community, that um, uh, no one was shying away from difficult topics, that uh, people who disagreed about all sorts of things were just fine about being together here in Chautauqua. And by the way, I think right now in this uh, incredibly polarized um, atmosphere in, in the United States, um, Chautauqua is, is more needed than ever uh, in that regard. I, uh, I was, of course, uh, 
amazed at the world-class uh, lecturers and performers and so on uh, that Chautauqua was able to draw, and uh, and that continues to be the case. Although I must say, it's it's a whole lot harder to find those people than it is to just come and enjoy them. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I'd been here before, I didn't pay much attention to, like, how it worked. I just... I just knew that it worked, and I enjoyed that it worked, and I loved being here. Um, so I came back last summer before I was technically an employee, just to pay attention to like how it worked, because because <laughs> like this summer it's going to be up to me to do that. Um, in terms of challenges, you know, I think um, uh, those continue to be the case, which is that um, it it seems we have an older and older. Um, um, clientele, if you call it that. The Chautauquans are, are somewhat aging. I think uh, a lot of the children and grandchildren of Chautauquans are less able to afford to be here or to take very much time out of their summer. Um, and, and I think we tend to be a, a fairly uh, small and particular slice of the population, both uh, economically and racially. You know, we're mostly white, we're mostly older, um, and we're mostly, um, you know, upper middle class people. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but the world is filled with uh, people from uh, a lot uh, different circumstances from that. And, and I think one of the challenges of uh, Chautauqua going forward into the future is how to uh, let Chautauqua continue to be what it has always been, but uh, to include people uh, uh, beyond those groups that we have normally appealed to, and and then and also be willing to be changed by those people, which is always the stickler, right? Uh, people don't uh, don't mind all sorts of people coming in as long as nothing changes. Well, you just don't get both of those things at the same time, um, and uh, we've always been open to. Um, changing things uh, based on our response to Chautauquans. But if if our Chautauquans were to become a more diverse crowd, religiously and uh, ethnically and racially and economically and so on, then we also have to be open to uh, what would the demands be uh, based on a more diverse um, group of people here. Sure. Your, one of your main responsibilities is to set the vision and the plan for our 2 p.m. lecture interfaith lecture series which is a, one of the more prominent platforms here it's one where you feature a lot of really prominent speakers who come in from all over the country theologians scholars uh, social justice activists those kinds of folks um, people might look at your background and your personal life and think you come to that work with some kind of bent a political bent how do you approach the how have you approached that that series and how do you approach the question of balance right I, I do come at it with a bent um, I come from a progressive the the progressive side of Christianity I come at it from a Christian perspective uh, not uh, some other uh, world faith and um, and politically I'm I'm pretty progressive but the two o'clock platform is not my platform. The two o'clock platform is the place for um, those who have something to say about morality, about how how one lives one's life in the world, and how religion relates or doesn't relate to that. And so, um, 
uh, I'm I'm working very hard uh, in terms of balance and and frankly, <laughs> uh, in my first year especially, but I think I will continue that. When I picked the nine preachers um, and chaplains for uh, the 2018 summer, I literally wanted three evangelicals and three mainstream and three progressive, uh, so that I could I would be able to say that um, that that there is this kind of balance. However, uh, I've written up a statement on what we mean by balance when, when we're talking about that in terms of religion. Uh, I'm, I'm not looking for balance around um, uh, political um, um, uh, understandings of, of America and, and uh, choosing, are, are we pro-Trump or are we anti-Trump and so on. Uh, maybe at 1045 they're looking for that, but that's not my, that's not my bailiwick. What I'm looking for is um, a balance uh, in in religious uh, diversity, so that you know we have some people um, who would um, uh, certainly uh, I'll speak here from the Christian side of things, who would who would tend to want to read the King James Bible. They would tend to uh, see the man as the head of the household because that's what Scripture says, and women should be uh, subordinate. Um, they would uh, tend not to care all that much that um, uh, masculine language is used uh, about God. Um, whereas on the progressive end of things, you would find more inclusive language um, about uh, about God, uh, because God is beyond gender. You would have uh, newer translations of Scripture and so on. So, um, so the, the the spread in terms of of um, of balance for us is is a religious balance. The other thing that um, that isn't really important about this two o'clock series is that Michael Hill uh, and I uh, share this notion that the whole world needs to be moving in an interfaith direction. Um, you know, it used to be uh, we we most noticed the differences between denominations. Uh, or even between the the uh, you know three or four um, sort of uh, uh, communities of Jews. Now the divide is between people of faith and people who claim no faith. Right. Um, and of course the nun, the so-called nuns, the the ones who have no um, uh, institutional uh, affiliation. Eighty um, plus percent of them say they still believe in God, and they would be the people who would tend to describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So um, so part of the balance that I'm looking for, uh, both in the, in the lectures and in our new series, which uh, we will be designating each Friday as Interfaith Friday, is to, is to look at all of those um, uh, approaches to the divine. Now, I, I'm liberal in this sense, that I believe that uh, God approaches humankind in an infinite number of ways, and that we perceive God in an infinite number of ways. And just because um, Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs and, and Muslims and Jews and Christians perceive God differently, maybe we're Maybe we're just perceiving different sides of God, um, because if you put all of them together, that still wouldn't be God, because God is bigger than that. But um, instead of 
of uh, drawing these harsh and and ornery um, differences of these lines between us and, and pointing out how, uh, how different we are. At the end of the day, we have so much more in common than that which separates us. And so my, my hope is that through this interfaith series, uh, Chautauquans will, will be introduced on a, on a deeper level, maybe than has happened before, to the way the divine... Um, finds human beings in a variety of ways. And so um, uh, I'm really looking forward to that part of the series. I, I've heard you say in the past, and into crowds here at Chautauqua too, that people come to the their house of worship at looking for God and what we give them is religion. Is that kind yeah, of what you're getting at? Yeah, I, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and it and it relates to the don't ever confuse the church with God, right? right? But it, 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 it means that I think we all have a spiritual longing. Now, uh, I would, in its most general terms, I would say that that has to do with the questions: Who am I? Why am I here? Uh, what, what am I supposed to get done while while I'm here? Right? I think those are religious questions uh, and spiritual questions. And so, um, it seems to me that one of the best things that Chautauqua can do is is to um, uh, illustrate and 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 showcase really the, the ways the different world faiths deal with those questions and indeed um, uh, this summer in 2018 um, we will have nine interfaith Fridays and we will have nine different perspectives uh, all answering the same questions which will if if you're here for more than one week you can compare them and at the end of the season we're we're hoping to to put those uh, present those nine presentations um, on the website and continue in an off-season way um, to to see how these nine different, uh, faith traditions not answered these same questions and um, and I think it I, I, I mean I think I will learn a great deal and I think most Chautauquans will as well excellent we've got some great people coming absolutely and I want to dig into that in a second I will note that you mentioned the website and those will all be available at online.chq.org for our listeners um, so I, I do want to dig into the program that you've that you and our director of religion, your colleague Maureen Ravenio, have been putting together for this summer. I'd love to go week by week um, to go through the thinking sure. um, and the vision that you've had in, inside each topic. Um, it, for those who are familiar with Chautauqua, we have a nine-week summer season, and each week is dedicated to a different topic and exploring it um, as deeply as we can over, in, in your case, over four lectures. And so oftentimes the chaplain even taps into that theme. So uh, and I want to spend maybe a minute or two on each each of them, and sure. if you want to highlight any of the speakers in particular. Um, so at the very first week of the season from June 25th through the 28th, uh, you'll be planning a, a week of lectures on producing a living faith today with a question mark at the end. What what does that, what, what does the question mark mean and how does that, um, what, what sort of plan do you have for that week? One of our um, most uh, adored speakers, um, or and certainly one of our most interesting, is Bishop Jack Spong. Uh, oddly enough, uh, I was I was nominated to succeed him in the Diocese of Newark. It was the first time I was nominated uh, to be a bishop, um, and uh, Bishop Spong has uh, it has really had a remarkable post-retirement 
um, uh, career. Uh, he um, he once told me that he gets up at, I don't know, some ungodly hour, like three or four o'clock in the morning, and writes for three or four hours every day. And... Um, uh, and it shows in his uh, really thoughtful writing. He is he is a rock star amongst those who have been alienated from uh, organized religion. And in some ways, he has a he has a larger following outside of organized religion than he does inside it. <laughs> and um, he's a favorite here. We wanted to bring him back. And about a year ago, he had a stroke, and um, we were not sure he was going to be able. He was not sure he was going to be able to return, but he is, and. We are delighted about that. And so he'll be talking about uh, uh, his new book. And our preacher that week is Caroline Lewis, who has also been here before. Uh, she's a Lutheran. She's one of my mainstream um, uh, folks. And uh, and I think it'll be a great way to kick off the season. Excellent. And Jack Spong is uh, he, he's one of the more pop, as you mentioned, one of the more popular speakers we have here. The Hall of Philosophy will be overflowing the days that he's here. Right. So make sure you arrive early to get a good seat. Uh, no one feels um, ho-hum about Jack Spong. They love him or they hate him, but they wouldn't miss him for the world. That's right. So we'll move on to, to the second week of the season. Uh, it's the 4th of, 4th of July week. The main lecture platform here at Chautauqua will be conducting an inquiry into American identity, and your platform's take on that is religion and American identity. What, what are you looking to explore inside that topic? We're trying to uh, focus on the ways in which religion helped shape uh, American identity. So we're going to uh, start off with Robbie Jones, who is head of the uh, um, uh, Public Religion Research Institute, uh, who will tell us how Americans identify uh, religiously. The next day, I'm, I am super excited about uh, having Colin Woodard here. Uh, he wrote the book uh, a few years ago about uh, American nations, sort of how we are 13 uh, ethnic groups, um, and that that may be a more helpful way of looking at America um, than, than the ways we have uh, traditionally done it. And his latest book uh, is called A History of the Epic Struggle Between Individual Liberty and the common good. And if you think about American history, it's, it is always um, a, a tussle between those two things. Like right. the thing that makes America great is um, anybody can come here and and work hard and succeed beyond any anyone's wildest imagining. But then as soon as you as you say something good about that, you have to say, yeah, but what about the common good? What about those people uh, whose circumstances prevent them from so-called so pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and so on. So he's going to look at how that struggle uh, has has shaped America. Um, uh, we're, we're also um, um, talking about the uh, Great Awakenings, which spawned most of the denominations, Christian denominations in this country. And... Uh, uh, as well as providing sort of religious fervor and so on. And um, and we'll end with looking at the progressive era, uh, which is the early part of the 20th century, and how uh, how it has continued to shape us. Um, and it, it, it put forward the notion that there ought to be real-world consequences for being a believer. And so if you, if you believe... Uh, 
what Jesus said about taking care of the most vulnerable in your midst, uh, then what does that say about public policy? And um, and that got fought out uh, quite a lot in the early part of the 20th century, but continues to shape us as we move forward. Absolutely. So um, it's, that's going to be uh, great. And we have a um, uh, someone out of the uh, conservative evangelical tradition, David Gushy, coming um, uh, to be our preacher that week. Um, he is... Um, uh, a, a quite noted ethicist and um, uh, teaches at uh, Mercer University. So he's, uh, I think he'll be a great preacher. Excellent. That'll be the week of July 2nd through the 5th. Uh, next week it, that we'll talk about is the third week of the season, July 9th through the 12th. Your, uh, the Interfaith Lecture Series will be exploring the spirituality of play, which I love because it's, it kind of, it strikes you first to, wait, where, what are you talking about there? And then, then if you think about it for a second, you, yeah, it does make a little bit of sense. So, the fact that you have that that reaction is is so telling uh, because I think most people do feel that way. It 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 shows how. Uh, 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 dreadedly dull and serious people think religion is, right? Rather than than playful and joyful and so on, which is just such a shame. I mean, I think that must break God's heart. And uh, and so we're we're taking a look at uh, the spirituality of play and how how do we in fact um, uh, understand uh, uh, play to be hmm, what an early experience of the heaven that we all uh, maybe hope for, or at least some of us hope for. And and I think uh, uh, we're going to explore this from um, a number of different religious perspectives and uh, make the case that uh, that play and leisure and, uh, and fun are uh, as godly as uh, being on your knees praying. Mm-hmm. And we have that, you know, from uh, a, a different number of of um, uh, perspectives, uh, Hindu and Jewish and and Islamic and so on. So we, I, I think that's going to be a really uh, fun week. And David Goatley um, uh, is um, interesting. He's he's a part of the Lot Carey Baptist Foreign Mission Convention, and um, it's a, a fairly conservative uh, group. Um, missionaries in the in the very oldest sense of that word. Um, David is an African American uh, preacher, and uh, and I think he'll be a lively uh, addition. And he'll be the chaplain for the whole week. That's that week. right, absolutely. Um, Russia often, uh, almost every day in the news, and uh, the week four of the Chautauqua season is on Russia's relationship with the West. And you, the interfaith lecture series will take it from an angle of vision of, of Russia and uh, its soul. What do you mean by that? Well, we're doing an un- a couple of unusual things this week. Um, so we're having the same lecturer every day. Um, Ori Soltz is, is from Georgetown University. And interestingly, he's a lecturer in both theology and the fine arts. And he is going to um, describe for us uh, the progression of Russian history by examining uh, religion and art. Uh, in Russia, and and we're we're going to do something uh, new here, uh, where we're making sure that there is a good Wi-Fi signal in the Grove all around the Hall of Philosophy, and there is going to be a place uh, a website for people to log on and see the art 
or the architecture that Ori is talking about in his lectures. And, and we're experimenting to see if this, this might be something we could do uh, on, on a reasonably regular basis. Um, when you're all spread out in, uh, in the grove around the uh, Hall of Philosophy, you can't just like have one screen up like you can in the amp. And so we're, we're experimenting with this notion of, of people using their cell phones or their iPads uh, to, um, uh, uh, to conjure up their own illustrations of, of what's going on. And uh, I, I think this will be really interesting. And, and Ori will be able to uh, maintain that kind of continuity all the way through. And what I love about that, too, is it's even more interactive than just a, pre a static presentation on a screen above a stage. The, the, exactly. The user actually gets to kind of manipulate the image and zoom in on parts of it that's... That's that's exactly yeah. right, and you know, in these days when uh, you know virtually everyone has a has a, a smartphone, uh, you can do that, and uh, and we're kind of excited to try it. And uh, our preacher of the week is is one of the uh, great favorites here at um, at Chautauqua. Greg Boyle is the uh, Roman Catholic um, uh, priest and founder of Homeboy Industries, mm -hmm. and uh, you know. Uh, I think of Greg Boyle and I cry uh, <laughs> because the story of what he has done uh, for those former gang members and so on is just uh, so inspiring. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jordan Steves, and we're here at the Chautauqua uh, Cohen Multimedia Studio talking with the Reverend Gene, Right Reverend Gene Robinson, who is our Vice President of Religion and Senior Pastor here at Chautauqua Institution. And we're running down through the weeks of the season. Um, we're moving on to week five now. Uh, this is a, obviously a very politically charged time in our culture, and we're looking at the ethics of dissent across both of our main lecture platforms this week. What is the Interfaith Lecture Series approach to this topic, Gene? Uh, uh, this is an interesting topic in the sense that uh, in this day and time, uh, we, we may uh, have some differences about what we think uh, we might be dissenting to or about. Um, but, the, but the question we're asking is, uh, uh, when one wants to uh, protest and dissent from uh, a, some sort of public policy, are there, uh, is, is there a line beyond which you will not go uh, in, in uh, uh, trying to achieve an end? That is to say, at what point does, does the means um, violate the end? Um, uh, so what if you get to the end, uh, if you've done it in a way uh, that destroys the community itself, then you haven't done much good, have you? So we're going to uh, take a look at that uh, ethically. Um, and there's a deep history of dissent in religion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, even fairly recently, I mean, let's remember that uh, Dr. King was himself uh, an ordained minister and that uh, the Christian and uh, Jewish uh, faiths here in this country played an enormous role in the civil rights uh, uh, movement of the, uh, of the 1960s. Um, I, I, I have to say that probably uh, the, the person I'm most excited about having here uh, is is uh, coming back to Chautauqua. He's a favorite here, Otis Moss III, um, who is uh, from Trinity Church in Chicago. He'll be here July 23rd. Right. And uh, he will kick off that week from the 23rd to the 26th on the, on the ethics of dissent. But very specifically so, 
Um, I don't know if you know this because I didn't know it until Otis uh, uh, taught me this, that the X-Men movies, right? Mm -hmm. Which started out as comic books. You're going in a direction I was not expecting. The X-Men movies uh, and the the comics books, those stories were written for the African-American community as it struggled between the teachings and and actions of Dr. King and Malcolm X. Wow. And so uh, he's going to talk about and contrast the ethics of dissent of Dr. King uh, and Malcolm X. And uh, and I relate to that in the sense of, um, in terms of the gay rights movement, we had both the um, uh, gay men's health crisis, an organization that was very compromising, very teaching, very calm, very, you know, uh, nice, you know, nice middle class people uh, talking to other nice middle class people. And then we had an organization called ACT UP, which was chaining itself to uh, the White House fence or stopping traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge. Those are two very different um ethics, right, of of ways of dissenting, I would maintain in our movement that we needed both of them, Mm -hmm. right? Not one or the other, but both. And so it'll be very interesting to see um, how uh, Otis talks to us about the ethics of dissent through the lives and work of Dr. King and, uh, and Malcolm X. And your chaplain for that week is Michael Ray Matthews. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he is a part of an organization of of uh, community organizing groups. Uh, he um, is, is ordained himself, and uh, and they work primarily with churches uh, in organizing communities to accomplish a, a common goal. And um, the thing I love about him, uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring him to Chautauqua, is uh, in almost every sermon, he sings. And he has got a magnificent voice. And I've told him that if he doesn't sing uh, in his sermons, um, there will be hell to pay because I've told everybody he does and they're looking forward to it. He's a, he's a, a wonderful human being. He and Otis uh, and I actually are uh, together are uh, senior fellows at the Auburn Seminary mm. uh, in, in New York City. And that's how I, I know them. And I, uh, Michael Ray is going to be a, a, a fantastic preacher. So we'll move on to week six. The morning lecture platform here at Chautauqua will be um, examining the changing nature of work. And on the interfaith platform, you're looking at it from a spiritual point of view. The spirituality, a spirituality of work is the title of the week. Right. And and, and to be honest, um, uh, it's about work and, and not work. Um, one of the things that America has lost, I think, is any notion of Sabbath. Um, I do have some friends who pick a 24-hour period every week and they turn their cell phone off mm. and they they uh, disengage from uh, that electronic world that we all now live in. Um, um, and so the question is, how does work and leisure, uh, you know, relate to one another? How do we, uh, in fact, um, uh, balance our lives? And what is there about work that is spiritually fulfilling? Uh, when I, I said earlier, you know, the, the real spiritual questions are, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to accomplish? Well, so that, that involves work, right? Um, what what 
what is my work in the world going to be? How am I going to, uh, how am I going to benefit? How is my family going to benefit? But the the real religious question is, how is the whole community going to benefit? Mm -hmm. And so we're going to uh, take a look at um, that notion of of work as something uh, that can and and uh, uh, hopefully should be. Um, uh, fulfilling spiritually. Right. And we're talking about the week of July 29th through August 3rd. Uh, your chaplain for that week is Sky Jathani. Yeah. So uh, Sky is, uh, the, the Sky part comes from his Norwegian uh, uh, ancestors, and the Jathani comes from his, um, it's either Indian or Pakistani. Uh, uh, he's he's a marvelous combination, right? And uh, I, he is what I would call uh, one of the new breed of of evangelicals. Mm. So uh, he is quite unapologetically evangelical, but not so ideological as we are used to seeing amongst uh, uh, evangelicals in this country. Uh, most of his ministry is either uh, blogging or uh, speaking uh, live at conferences uh, around this country and around the world. Uh, uh, his his writing is very exciting. Uh, he is one of our uh, younger preachers, and uh, I think he's going to bring uh, a lot. Also, that week we're uh, uh, bringing back Joan Chittister, who is you know just one of the gifts to the world, um, um, a Roman Catholic sister who who has. Um, uh, been active uh, in all kinds of movements, but but has done some really remarkable uh, writing and th- and thinking about the spirituality of work. Excellent. Now into the final third of the season, uh, our week seven at Chautauqua, August fifth through the tenth. Your uh, the, this is this is a departure week where the morning platform will be all talking all about the arts and global understanding. Yo Yo Ma will be on the grounds this week um, for part of the week. And complete departure for your platform, Gene. What what is what's going on? With right. Let I mean, who cake? who can who can um, <laughs> compete with Yo Yo Ma right. and, the, and the Silk Road Ensemble, right? Um, and and you know, several times during any given season, it's it's just um, it's it's just too tortured a journey uh, to to take some uh, try to figure out a religious take on the morning. So um, so we're using this opportunity to take a look at. Uh, the results of a Supreme Court decision, uh, which is being decided as we speak and will be announced in June. And it is the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case out of Colorado, which, uh, in my opinion, will will shape the trajectory of religion in America for the next decade. Mm. Um, because um, we know it takes a long time to overturn a precedent set by the uh, Supreme Court. So we're going we're gonna to live with this for quite some time. And, and we have got sort of the giants of that field coming to speak to us about the decision um, and, and about, generally speaking, the relationship between um, uh, religion um, and, uh, and government um, and what are the boundaries? Um, uh, where does my religion end and your civil rights begin? Um, and uh, this this case, of course, is um, ostensibly about is is about um, a baker who did not want to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. But it goes way beyond um, um, that particular uh, setting because I mean, if if you look back to the sixties. Um, 
there were people arguing that you ought to be able to turn away an African-American at your lunch counter if, if in fact, your religion uh, said that, um, uh, that the races shouldn't mix and that they were inferior. And, and there were people who, who claimed that on religious grounds. Well, we decided at that time uh, that, uh, no, that could not be. That if you, if, you, if you hung out a shingle and said you were serving lunch, you had to serve anybody that walked in. So the question is, does the same go for wedding cakes? And so uh, this will have far-ranging um, uh, implications because, for instance, what if you come to me for birth control? I'm a pharmacist and you come to me for birth control and I think birth control is wrong. Can I refuse to give you birth control pills? Um, or uh, there are all sorts of uh, uh, things. Should I treat you um, if you're, um, uh, uh, you know, let's let's say you're a gang member or whatever? I think you're an evil person, and uh, I don't want to treat you in the emergency room. Do I have the right to claim that on on religious grounds? Um, and this is an interesting case because nobody. Nobody is claiming to know how this one is going to mm -hmm. come out. It seems to be uh, very, very uh, close. So we have literally the giants in the field of, of religion and, and public life uh, talking to us about that case and, and where, uh, where they see it going. And the decision will be sometime in late in June. June. So we'll That's, have some time yep. to digest it and, That's and exactly revisit right. it in early August. Uh, and your chaplain that week is David Shirey, am I pronouncing that correctly, from Lexington, Kentucky. That's right. Mm -hmm. He's actually from my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky. I was going to uh, ask that. And Disciples of Christ, which is the denomination I grew up in. Uh, uh, certainly uh, mainline Christian, um, uh, a great preacher, uh, a great uh, local pastor, and uh, I, I think he's going to be fantastic. Excellent. Moving on to week eight of the Chautauqua season, we're here with Bishop Gene Robinson, the v VP of Religion here at Chautauqua. Um, we're talking about August 12th through 17th. This is toward the end of our season. And in this week, you're looking at the the, the history of, of Martin Luther King, and, and the, the theme for the week is uh, the Forgotten, and it's about history and memory in the 21st century. You've chosen to specifically um, focus on Martin Luther King, his life and legacy. Why, why did you choose to well, specifically Well, this, of focus course, is the 50th thing? anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And, and the theme, you know, basically asks the question, well, what are some of the lessons in history uh, from which we should have learned uh, but we either didn't learn them or we forgot them. And it's, it seems to us that a, uh, a way of honoring the legacy of Dr. King uh, would be to uh, reflect back on um, uh, uh, what we should have learned during that movement uh, and what we still have to learn. Um, in particular, uh, I am hoping our, our speakers, I've asked our speakers to focus on the last two or three years of Dr. King's uh, life and ministry, which you don't hear much about. Everyone loves I Have a Dream, right? Uh, but nobody likes the last couple of years when Dr. King began to do this intersectional work where he put together race and poverty and militarism in ways that I would argue uh, made him very dangerous to the status quo. And, 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 and most people forget that a lot of good liberals turned against him mm -hmm. in the last couple of years of his life. And so uh, we're thinking that, uh, A, we ought to celebrate 
uh, on this 50th anniversary year. And uh, the best way of celebrating um, uh, those things that we may have forgotten is to look at this this last part of his ministry uh, as it was developing. And uh, he knew he would get in trouble over it. And um, um, it, it, it seems to me that it was only a matter of time until the system somehow uh, did him in. And I know you love the story of our chaplain for that week, Irene Monroe. Yeah, Irene is uh, this, uh, she's a wild woman. She's, uh, she describes herself as a Bapticostal, <laughs> so sort of a Pentecostal Baptist background. But the, the stunning thing about her story is that uh, when she was three days old, she was found in a trash can in a public park in the Bronx. And um, the garbage was not supposed to be picked up that day, but for some reason they stopped at this particular trash can and, and, a, and a garbage man found her. They took her to the Foundling Hospital in, um, in New York, uh, where she was cared for by Sister Irene, who named her Irene, because that was her name, and her favorite movie star was Marilyn Monroe. So she named this this three-year-old, three-day-old child, uh, Irene Monroe. Uh, she grew up um, in foster care and went on to uh, get degrees from um, uh, all sorts of uh, Ivy League uh, colleges and, and graduate schools and went on to become Peter Gomes's assistant at Harvard. Uh, really quite remarkable. And in a funny turn of events, was invited by Oprah uh, to come on her show, uh, which she was doing about sort of uh, amazing beginnings, right, mm-hmm. to your life. And so they told Irene's story. And her, uh, um, she had been found, of course, by this garbage man. Oprah's staff found him, found the garbage man that had found her and flew him to Chicago and reunited them. They had not, of course, wow. kept track of each other. But Irene is a um, an exciting uh, African American preacher and uh, theologian, and uh, uh, I, I think people are going to love her. Excellent. And then our last week of the season, we'll have the Chautauqua Food and Film Festival here on the grounds. Uh, documentary films, the focus of the week, and yours is the intersection of cinema and religious values on the inner. Uh, interfaith lecture platform from August 19th through 24th. What are you looking to explore in that topic? I think people underestimate the power of film in general, but also underestimate the power of of, uh, religious, um, uh, either uh, sponsored films or uh, overtly religious films in terms of uh, changing people's minds about some sort of of uh, a public issue. So we're going to start the week uh, with uh, Dan Karslake, who, as uh, we've talked about before, is a Chautauquan here of many generations. And um, uh, he has done um, uh, several uh, different uh, types of films. And uh, we're going to have Mackie Alston here, who has won uh, a huge number of awards for his five or six documentary films on a variety of topics. We're going to have uh, Dan Habib here, who is, um, uh, he and his wife uh, um, uh, have two sons, the younger of whom um, was severely disabled. And he got into filmmaking because he discovered that the great beneficiary of mainstreaming his disabled son were the able-bodied 
uh, classmates of this disabled mm. kid and made a film about it, which um, uh, which was called Including Samuel. And uh, uh, it won all kinds of awards and uh, it, it is uh, dramatically uh, changing people's uh, uh, minds about uh, disability. I think his latest film is on the uh, a spectrum of autism and um, uh, how, that, how we regard that and uh, what special gifts uh, the autistic bring to us um, uh, as a um, uh, committee and then uh, as a community. And then our preacher for the week is Winnie Vargasif, who um, is uh, 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 Pakistani parents, but they were um, uh, at, uh, in graduate school, I believe it was the University of Texas when she was born. So she's an American citizen. Um, and she is on, uh, she's a priest on the staff of Trinity Church Wall Street. So she's an Episcopal priest and a uh, great preacher. She was, um, before that, she uh, was the uh, uh, chaplain at UCLA and then chaplain at Columbia University and then uh, the rector of uh, St. Mark's in the Bowery in, in New York City. So uh, it's, I think it's a great lineup. I, I, I totally agree. You, you put a, a bow on the season. You'll, be the la- you'll give the sermon on the last Sunday. And I, I, can I sense... think the last batter is called the cleanup that's guy, right? right? Uh, so that's, that's what I'll be. The fourth batter, actually. But, yeah, <laughs> there you, you can, go. But uh, yeah, I can sense your enthusiasm for this work and what's, uh, what has come of the season, this first season that you've helped plan, Gene. How, how excited are you for the Chautauqua season to start? I'm, I'm really excited, uh, uh, partly because I, I know quite a lot of these people and I, I know the kind of gifts that they will bring uh, to the Chautauquans here. Um, it, it, it's been a... a a wonderful first year. I kept saying to my colleague, Maureen Ravenio, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how far along we should be in the planning at this point. Will you tell me when I should panic? <laughs> so she never told me that we, it's time to panic and we have all of our slots filled and we're, uh, we really, really are excited about the, the folks that, that uh, Chautauquans will get to meet this summer. And we're excited to welcome you for your first full season on, on staff here. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us today, Gene. And if you need, want any more information on all these great programs we've talked about, uh, visit Chautauqua's website at chq.org. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to Gene Robinson for joining us on CHQ&A today. Our producer for this program was Dave Munch, with additional support from Ray Downey. A version of this program will also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM, listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. And we're grateful to General Manager Dennis Drew for our partnership. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.